The following audio is from Life Baptist Church in Las Vegas, Nevada. For more information about our church, please visit lifebaptistchurch.com. So we are studying God's miraculous ways from John chapter 6, and we have already established that the Bible very clearly teaches that we serve a miracle-working God. That is, God has all ability, all authority, all power to do whatever it is that he desires. We also know, according to Scripture, that the Bible tells us that as believers, we are to cast all of our cares upon God because he cares for us. So whenever you're talking about miraculous ways of God, the question is never, can God do the miraculous? The question is also not, should we ask God to intervene? The question really becomes, do we trust him enough to still follow faithfully, even if he chooses not to act in the way that we desire? That is the rub for a lot of people. As Christians, we live in this strange tension between knowing that we have a God who can do anything and also the strange tension of realizing that God often chooses to act in ways outside of what we would desire for him to act. It kind of begins to blur the lines of faith, at least on my side it does. And that is, is faith believing that God can act or is faith believing that God will act or is faith both? Also, we recognize in Scripture that there is no formula in the Bible that says God will always act under these circumstances, and there's also no comforting word that you can give someone if God chooses to act in a way different than what they desire. So as we entered into John chapter 6 this last week, we were immediately met with a story of Jesus miraculously feeding 5,000 men, not including women and children, with a kid's lunch. And because of the miraculous nature of the story, it begins to bring up some of those unsettled issues and questions that Christians might have. Questions like, why does God do the miraculous for this person and he didn't do the miraculous for that person? Or, as Christians, should we always expect God to do the miraculous? Is that what it means for us to live by faith? Or, what do you do if you desperately need God to act, to intervene, and he chooses not to? How do you recover emotionally or spiritually or, for that matter, mentally after that point? So this morning, we finish out the story itself, but we also finish some of these foundational lessons for the miracle-working ways of God. Um, If you are in a place in your life right now where you feel as though you need God to intervene, you need a miracle to happen, you are asking God, would you step in? I cannot encourage you enough to take time today and really listen to the truths that are going to be presented. So if you're not already there, join me once again, John chapter 6. I am not going to reread the entire text this morning because we got a lot of material to work through, but I would love it if you have the Bible open, and that way when we get to the new material, you can clearly see where that is coming from. So I am finishing the message we began this last week entitled, I Need a Miracle. So let's start with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we ask you this morning that you would allow our mind, our focus, our attention to be incredibly clear today. God, I pray that you would speak through me today, and Lord, would the lessons that you desire for your people to know, would they be clearly received? In Jesus' name, amen. So here is a quick refresher of the material that was covered this last week. The feeding of the 5,000 is the only miracle in the Gospels, apart from the resurrection of Christ, that is mentioned in all four Gospel accounts. 
Because we have four eyewitnesses to this specific event, it means there's a lot more detail that we have on this story than maybe what we do on some of the other ones. And I wanna try my best to bring out any of the relevant details in order to help tell the story more fully this morning. So Matthew and Mark provide two reasons as to why Jesus and his disciples needed a place to get away. First, the disciples had just come back from their first preaching mission, and while they were gone, Jesus had been involved in some extensive, exhausting ministry of his own. The second reason is they had just gotten the news that John the Baptist had been killed. Now remember, this is the forerunner of Christ. This is a relative of Christ. For that matter, some of Jesus' disciples were formerly some of John the Baptist's disciples. So this is one that hits personally for them. They had a lot going on. They were exhausted. So Jesus said, let's go find a place to get away and let's rest a while. But as you know, that's not what happened. According to the other gospel accounts, whenever they were going across the Sea of Galilee on boat, a crowd of people saw them going across the sea, and they ran along the shoreline so that the crowd was waiting for them when they got to the other side. And this crowd was not motivated by repentance. They're not motivated by love or by faith in Jesus. Rather, according to verse 26, they were thrill seekers who did not understand the significance of Jesus's miraculous signs. They were intended to point to Jesus as Messiah and Son of God. So understanding that context, we asked two questions this last week. What is the miracle intended to teach us? Because there is the story, and then there's the lesson behind the story. And then the second question that we asked is, what should you remember if you need a miracle? If you need God to intervene, what are some basic biblical truths that you need to keep in mind to frame out that moment in your life? So first truth that I gave this last week is miracles happen in the presence of Christ and according to the Father's will. John's gospel is replete with stories of miracles happening in the presence of Christ. In chapter number two, Jesus turned water to wine at a wedding. In chapter five, he heals a man who had been ill for 38 years. In chapter six, he feeds the 5,000 with a kid's lunch, and he walks on water. In chapter nine, he heals a blind man. Chapter 11, he raises a dead man, on and on and on. Miracles happen in the presence of Christ. So we made a connection with that. If you need a miracle, where do you think you need to be? In the presence of Christ. We need to abide in him, remain in him, be with him. Also, we saw that Jesus' miracles had an intended purpose. They were not intended just to mesmerize people for the sake of entertainment, but rather they were done in accordance with the Father's will so that it would point to Jesus as Messiah, Son of God. So here's the takeaway we got from point number one. If you need a miracle, continue to pursue Christ Abide in him, remain in him, be with him. That's the first part. But it doesn't mean that if you do that, the miracle is going to happen. Because again, there is no particular formula that says, if you do this, God will always do that. Because miracles are done not according to our wants, but they are done according to the Father's will. Here's the second truth that we covered. Miracles will test your faith through impossible situations. To see the miraculous requires us to face the impossible. Most of us want to see God do something supernatural in our lives for no other reason than the sheer curiosity of what it would look like. 
but most of us do not want to be put in circumstances that would mean the miraculous is necessary. We don't like being put in impossible situations. So in this story, they were in a desolate place without supplies. Everyone is hungry. It's too late to go get food. There's not a place they could find food. And even if they could find the food, there's not enough money to pay for all the food that they needed. So it is a moment designed to test the disciples' faith. Jesus asked Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these may eat? And Philip never actually answered the where question because he was too busy focused on the what problem. To Philip, it seemed pointless to discuss where to buy bread if they didn't have enough money to pay for the bread. Then you have Andrew who reported on the meager supplies that they found. And he said, what are these for so many people? So from Andrew's perspective, it seemed pointless to talk about feeding the crowds if there wasn't even enough food to provide a meal for a grown adult. So all of these things are now coming into play. Both guys are focused on the problem instead of being focused on Christ. And that is the issue that's going to happen the moment our faith is challenged in any circumstance. That is, the more desperate the moment, the more difficult the problem, the easier it is for us to become overwhelmed in that moment, take our eyes off of Christ, and place it on the problem itself. We have to remember, our job is not to figure out how Jesus is going to multiply resources. Our job is not to figure out how he's going to make a way where there is no way. Our job is to keep our eyes focused on Christ to continue to pursue him and trust him that he can do what he needs to do with the details that remain. That brings us to our new information for this morning. What should you remember when you need a miracle? Point number three, miracles may challenge your pride and self-sufficiency. When the disciples stalled out, they had no more options. Jesus took charge of the situation. Now, somebody might say, is it fair to hold the disciples to that level of scrutiny? I mean, it was an impossible situation. There is absolutely nothing that they could do. Well, yes and no. This is why it's important to read the other gospel accounts. If you'll notice, everything I have for this particular point is found in Mark chapter 6. Remember the reason that they needed to go find a place to rest to begin with. According to Mark, as well as to Matthew, they said that the disciples had just returned from a preaching mission. While they were gone, Jesus was involved in extensive ministry, and they just got the word that John the Baptist had been killed. This is exactly what Mark records in chapter 6, verses 30 and 31, when they came back from their preaching mission. Here's what it says. The apostles gathered around Jesus, and they reported to them, listen closely to the words, all that they had done and taught. All that they had done and taught. Jesus responded, come away by yourselves to a secluded place and rest a while. Now get this picture. The disciples have just come back. They're excited. The preaching mission went great. And they were so thrilled. They wanted to tell Jesus everything that they had done. Everything they had done. Now, think for just a moment about this. Did Jesus know that there was going to be a crowd waiting for him on the other side of the Sea of Galilee? Absolutely. Did Jesus know that those people were going to be hungry, ministry was going to happen, and there wasn't enough supplies to take care of them? 
Yes. Was any part of that moment designed as a test for his disciples? Yes. That's exactly what we learned last week in verse number six. So here's the picture. They get to the other side. The crowd is already there. Ministry happens. Everybody gets hungry. They're facing an impossible situation. And Jesus says, hey, guys, the crowd is hungry. How are you going to feed them? What are you going to do? You just came back telling me everything you did the last time. What are you going to do in this? All you got to do is feed them. You see where he's going in this? Listen. As Christians, it is entirely too easy to take credit for something God did around us because we were present when it happened. For example, if you lead someone to faith in Christ, you may mistakenly think it was the persuasiveness of your argument that tipped the scale in that person's favor. Or if a church grows under a pastor's leadership, that pastor may think, my leadership was so great, that's why the church grew. Or if God gives us victory in some area of sin, we might think it was our discipline or our devotion or our our determination and willpower that made the difference here. But according to what Jesus is clear about in John 15, apart from him, we can do nothing. So you see... To remind us that it is all about him and it's not about us. God allows us to face impossible situations so that we come to grips with our insufficiency and his sovereignty. He brings us into those moments to let pride and self-sufficiency die down so that humility and God dependence can now be built in. There's not a lot of amens that you get on something like that. Everybody's like, whatever, Paul. Okay, so here's the next one. What should you remember when you need a miracle? Miracles may intertwine ordinary steps of obedience with supernatural divine intervention. It may intertwine ordinary steps of obedience with supernatural divine intervention. Instead of reprimanding his disciples for weak faith and inflated egos, Instead, he instructs them to have the people sit down. And according to Mark, he's told him to have them sit in groups of 50 and groups of 100. Now, here's a, an encouraging word. Their faith may have just failed the test, but their obedience was on point. Despite any lingering doubts they might have had as to whether or not going through the motions is going to do anything, whether or not they could actually feed the crowds, whatever might have been in their mind, it didn't stand in the way of them doing exactly what Jesus told them to do. So they do that. They have the people sit down. According to the text, it says there was a lot of green grass in the area. They have them sit down, groups of 50 and 100, and without any fanfare, without any theatrics, Jesus took the loaves, he gives thanks, and then he distributed the food to the people through the disciples. The disciples were used in this. Now, could he have miraculously put the food in front of all of the people so that he could bypass the disciples completely? Absolutely. I mean, if he's miraculously multiplying food, he can miraculously get it to the people all by himself. But what we find is that God chooses to work through frail, feeble humans. 
and steps of obedience, acts in which we are doing what he has told us to do in order to accomplish much of his will. Instead of everyone getting a little, as was suggested by Philip in verse 7, it says, everyone ate as much as they wanted and they were filled. And then Jesus did something that once again is incredibly practical and ordinary. He commanded the disciples, gather up the leftover fragments so that nothing will be lost. God's abundant, miraculous provision was no reason to waste resources. This is like a first example, kind of like Tupperware back in the day right here. I mean, he just said, hey, go around, get you some baskets, take up the fragments that remain. That is incredibly practical. So this miracle had both ordinary steps of obedience with supernatural divine intervention. It was interwoven together. When you were trusting God for a miracle, do not think that every step has to be miraculous, in your mind miraculous, for it to be a miracle from God. So for example, if you were trusting God for healing in your life, don't think that the only way it is miraculous is if God heals you by just giving a word and you're instantly healed. Because God may choose to do that. But God may also choose to bring miraculous healing by sending you to a specialist, sending you to a doctor, sending you to a hospital in order to receive care. It doesn't make it any less miraculous if he chooses to use some ordinary means along the way. Because you know as well as I do, there's people that have gone into the hospital with similar types of issues, received the exact same type of treatment, and one person's healed and one person's not. There's nothing that says that the medical community is going to heal all the time. It requires God's touch and healing, whether or not you go through a doctor otherwise. Also, it might be that you're praying that God would give you a financial miracle. Now, God may choose to drop off just a chunk of change at your front door. That would be wonderful and supernatural. But God may also choose to give you a better job to provide for the needs that way. Or, here's one that you get no amens from. He might give you another job on top of the one you already have. Don't, don't think that it is any way less miraculous if God supplies your needs through some form of ordinary means. So, here's the next one. Miracles should teach us gratefulness in a little and a lot. It is significant that John mentions twice that Jesus gave thanks. First in verse number 11 and then again in verse number 23. The other three gospel writers say that as he gave thanks, he looked up to the heavens. That is significant. It is reminding the people that God is the source. Also, by giving thanks over this little bit, this five loaves and two fish, by giving thanks over that, he is demonstrating a thankfulness and a gratefulness even in the small things. Here is another incredible lesson that we can learn from this. Instead of complaining about what we don't have, thank God for what we do have and trust him to multiply it. All right, I got four amens on that. We're we're moving along. Some of you have heard me share some of the stories of how God provided for mine and Bria's needs when we were back in college. For those of you who have not, here's kind of a quick rundown. When I went back to finish my undergrad, I was a full-time student. I had three part-time jobs. Bria was, had a 
full-time job and another part-time job on the side. And that was not so that we could have abundance. That was just to make ends meet. And even then, it was difficult. So this was about 20, 22 years ago. We had a $390 a month apartment. Think of what $390 would pay for today. That's about what it paid for back then as well. So we had a catastrophic care policy instead of health insurance. We were trusting God all along the way. We didn't do birthday gifts or Christmas gifts. We didn't do that for years because there wasn't any extra money. In fact, at that time, Bria had to remind me of the numbers again. At that time, on an average week, for two people, we had $15 a week to buy groceries. A good week, and that good week would be if I got an extra job doing like yard work, because that was one of my jobs I did on the side. I'd cut lawns, I would do whatever to make ends meet. If I got another lawn, we might go up to $30 on that week. So during that time, we had a decision that we had to make. Early on in our marriage, we had to settle this question. Will we trust God to provide for our needs? And if we're going to trust God to provide for our needs, do we trust that he owns everything, that he has everything, and that our walking with him in obedience is going to lead to him caring for our needs? So during that time when we had very little, we were grateful for what we had, but also we tithed on the little bit that we had. So we've made the decision early on that tithing is an act of worship and an act of faith and an act of obedience. And that is in that moment, we are saying we are going to make a definitive step so that God is first in our lives, both individually and in our marriage, as well as in our finances. It's also an act of faith because we were saying we are trusting that God can do more with the 90% that remains than if we kept all 100% for ourselves. So all along the way, I could have easily made an argument saying, doesn't God want my wife and I to eat? I mean, that, that seems like a pretty basic necessity. Also, I could have easily put it on a credit card, but we were saying early on, if God was calling us on this ministry journey, we believed he had the resources to pay for it along the way. So we kept bringing our needs back to God. And here's what would happen. Bria would get the sales papers from the grocery store. And she would pray over those things, and she would ask God to give her eyes to find every two-for-one deal, every buy-one-get-one-free, every clearance item that you could locate in the store. If that had on the date on there, like that meat was going to spoil that afternoon at 2 o'clock, that joke was going home with us, we're going to trust God it would make it till 5. I mean, literally, we were doing whatever it took in order to trust God along the way. And here's what happened. God always provided. I mean, it always provided. There was a lot of beans and rice we ate back in that time, but beans and rice are good for you. Amen? All right, so at least I tell myself that anyway. But anyway, so we would do that, but then along the way, there would be unexpected bills that we didn't even see coming. The car would break down. And now you're trying to figure out how are we going to pay for a car payment or to get a car fixed on top of this? Or another lab fee would come with college or, or the tires on a vehicle would need to be replaced. We're like, God, what do you do? We kept thanking him for what we had and trusting him along the way. And here's what we found. Over and over again, we got excited about going to the mailbox. You know why? 
Because as we're praying, God, I don't know where it's going to come from, we would have an insurance company from five years ago send us a letter and say, we're so sorry, we overcharged you five years ago. Here's some money. We're like, thank you very much for that. Okay, and that happened multiple times. Then there would be like utility companies. They would say, three years ago, we overcharged you on this. Here's the money given back to you. And it happened for the same company several times. They had the worst accounting system ever, but I was okay with that. Now, I'm telling this story in the first service. A lady came to me afterwards and said, just this last week we were praying. And they, she said that last week they had all these bills come in. They were praying. And the utility company gave them a $1,500 check from three years ago living in another state. Some of you need to be thanking God for your utility company this morning. I'm gonna, tomorrow morning, everybody's going to be running to their mailbox to find out. Is it there? Is it there? So anyway, all along the way, we kept trusting God, and God would supply in amazing ways. Sometimes there would be that check in the mail. Sometimes there'd be a family member come through, like Bria's parents like twice came through, and they said, we'd like to go fill your freezer at Sam's. We, we were in the car faster than we could give them a chance to change their mind on that. I mean, we rolled up in Sam's like we owned that joker. I said, Bria, grab you a card. I got my card over here. I mean, we were going to take advantage of that opportunity. There were times God gave extra work. But here's the thing. If you're not grateful for the little you have today, you won't be grateful for the lot that he gives you tomorrow. They thanked him for the little and when you're thankful there, you can be thankful for a lot. Here's the last piece, and we close. What else do miracles teach us? Miracles teach us something about God. After consuming this miraculous meal, the people said, this is truly the prophet who has come into the world. The allusion to the prophet is likely connected back to Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 15, where Moses predicted that there would be one coming after him who would command the hearing of God's people. And since Moses had been used of God to supply manna in the desert, a type of bread, it was assumed that this prophet who was coming would also multiply bread for God's people. So as Jesus now multiplies the bread, it connects in their mind and they say, this has to be the prophet. This is the one that we have been waiting for. So they learned something about God. They learned a part of the identity of Christ, which is exactly what the miraculous signs were intended to do. But they also learned something about God's timing and his sovereignty. The people wanted to make him their king. They, they wanted an earthly deliverer, someone who would meet their physical needs, that is both their need for food, their need for health, but they also wanted someone who would liberate them from Rome. So in their minds, Jesus is it. But in verse 15, it says, they were intending to come and take him by force to make him king. But Jesus refused to be made king because of their selfish and their unrepentant desires. Here's what we learned from this. Jesus does not acquiesce to our whims or selfish desires. He acts according to the Father's will, not our will. He, he acts on his terms, not ours. 
So Jesus is not a quick fix for all of our felt needs. And that's one of the things that I think preaching has distorted the gospel message. It's kind of been presented that if you trust Jesus, he'll save your soul, that's great, but he'll give you this, 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 and this. And people come in thinking, well, great, Jesus can take care of the long-term stuff, and he can make me healthy and wealthy and prosperous right here and now. Listen, it is absolutely true that God is going to bless his people. He is going to bless us with joy and peace, companionship, purpose, hope, a grace that sustains, you name it. But it is equally true that those things come in their fullness to those who mourn over their sin, those who repent of their rebellion, those who acknowledge him as Savior and Lord. So it's one of those things where we don't come on our terms to get what we want from him. But rather, if we're going to come, we come on his terms, trusting him all along the way. So let's put it all together. God can absolutely do anything. He is the miracle-working God. A part of our faith training is that he will often lead us into impossible situations. And in that moment, we have a decision to make. Will we trust ourselves and our ability, or will we trust him? Part of the reason we're in that impossible situation is to allow pride and self-sufficiency to die down so that humility and God-dependence can flourish. Part of the reason we're in that impossible situation is to teach us something about God, who he is, and how he works. We cannot manipulate God. We cannot coerce him. We cannot force him to do our bidding. God acts in accordance with his will. But regardless of what we're facing, The biblical course of action is to pursue Jesus, to trust him, to thank him for what he has provided, and to have faith that he can make the things work out in the end. Even if we don't understand why God has done what he has done, here's what you can know for sure. Everything has been filtered through his love, filtered through his wisdom, filtered through his will. And it shouldn't surprise us if we don't understand everything about that moment because there's a lot of things in this life that we will never understand on this side of eternity. The big question for us is will we continue to trust and follow him faithfully regardless of what he does? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask this morning that you would once again give us an incredible, incredible desire not just for the gifts that come from your hand, but for you as the giver. God, I pray that for those people who are in the room right now and they are facing difficult, impossible situations, God, would you help them to learn what you're desiring to teach them about yourself? God, I pray that along the way, there is a freedom that comes from knowing that even though they control nothing in this, You sovereignly have every aspect under your control. When you choose to act, it will be through wisdom and love and according to your will. When you choose not to act, it will be through wisdom and through love and according to your will. Nothing changes on that. So God, may we trust you. In Jesus' name, amen.